when I was a kid, um, I, I, the way it came to a head, I, I wanted to do something uh, kind of professional. I did have that idea in mind. Uh, so I said I wanted to be a dentist. <laughs> and, but I wound up a psychologist, uh, a social psychologist. Um, so um, there's obviously a transition there. <laughs> I, I wanted to be a dentist because the uh, my dentist in my little in my neighborhood um, just outside of Chicago was named Claude so he had the same name and I have to confess he had a very attractive wife <laughs> and I thought how bad could that be <laughs> what a nice life so uh, you know it wasn't rooted in uh, deep thoughts or anything <laughs> more of a passing association. But when I got to college, I took psychology. And um, even though the first courses I, I took, um, the field was in a very different uh, state at that point, studying rats and pigeons and so on. That wasn't so compelling. But then I took a social psychology class and I just fell in love with, with that level of thinking about life and things. And I, I felt like I, I could be at home there. So uh, once that happened, uh, Without thinking about it, I really never wavered. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Claude M. Steele. Dr. Steele is an American social psychologist and a professor of psychology at Stanford University. He is best known for his work on stereotype threat and its application to minority student academic performance. His book, Whistling Vivaldi and Other Clues to How Stereotypes Affect Us, summarizes years of research on stereotype threat and the underperformance of minority students in higher education. Without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Steele. Thank you. It's great to be here. Like, I mean, it's a real treat to have you. As I was telling you before we began recording, out of all the papers and books I had to read in college, your book has resonated with me the most. I'd be hard-pressed to name other authors and writers I had to read, but Whistling Vivaldi has really stuck with me for a number yeah. of reasons. First of all, you so first, that's one of the nicest yeah. compliments I've ever gotten, so I much appreciate it. <laughs> of course. And I mean, it, it stuck with your book has stuck with me for a number of reasons. Firstly, the title, Whistling Vivaldi, it just caught my attention as soon as I saw it on the course syllabus. I'm wondering, what, what does that mean? What is that book about? And I mean, you know more than anyone I've spoken to probably that we judge a book by its cover. You're a psychologist. You know, that comes that comes naturally in, in in the research you've pointed out too. And so I'm, I'm curious, how did you, out of all the experiments, out of all the, the possible things you could have titled this book, how did you land on, the, on Whistling Vivaldi? And the cover is also fascinating. So you have a great title, but you also have this really fascinating cover, which is different colored circles of equal size, three circles by three circles, each with a different descriptor inside, you know, white, black, teen, Indian, Latino, how did you how did you craft this really mesmerizing title and cover? Mm. I, well, I can't take any credit for the cover. That was the, the publisher's 
did that. And when the, the first edition of the book had a very different color, a cover, which I hated. <laughs> sort of shadowed faces and, you know, kind of under the shadow of stereotypes, I think is what they were after. But it was depressing. And I couldn't imagine myself picking a book up like that. Uh, and so we had a lot of back and forth. And then they did come up with this cover, which which gets much more, much closer to the the essence of the book. The story, um, I cast about for something that would capture the phenomenon and a um, uh, friend, uh, Brent Staples, who's a writer for the New York Times, uh, published a autobiography. And in it, he tells about the story that's in the book from which the title was taken of, of uh, walking down the streets of Chicago as a graduate student at the University of Chicago. and finding that, that whites were made uncomfortable by his presence. So he could see that he was being seen through the lens of a stereotype um, uh, as possibly a, a menacing African-American male. And uh, it really bu bu bugged him. He wrote a great deal about this, which is not covered in my book. So I recommend his book, Parallel Time. Uh, but he was also trying to learn how to whistle. And so as he would go down the street whistling, complicated things like Vivaldi and then other things like the Beatles tune, he could see that people saw him differently and that they, they just saw him as, well, he's just a graduate student or just a student here at the U of C. And so they would say hello and he'd say hello and the whole interaction would, would soften. Um, and it, that was kind of told the story of the book that, uh, you know, he, he could see that he, was being seen stereotypically in the behavior of people around him. And it was oppressive to him, very oppressive. Uh, and then he did something in his own behavior, which punctured that stereotype. And he could see it dissolve and see himself seen very differently. So it's a nice story in terms of capturing uh, a reality I think all of us experience, which is that at some point we, we understand, we kind of feel that we're being seen through a stereotype about our age young, old, about our religion, uh, maybe about our ethnicity, uh, our race, um, and so on. And uh, when we're under that gaze, uh, it's, it can be, um, uh, if it's, if it's going to interfere with something, could potentially interfere with something important to you, it, it's upsetting and distracting, and, and that's the pressure that stereotype threat imposes or can impose on people. Yeah, and this, this concept of stereotype threat, you've noted that every group has its own forms of stereotype threat, whether you're old, whether you're young, whether you're white, whether you're black. And you, you talked about this experiment where, and please jump in if I'm saying this incorrectly, but I remember there were two groups of golfers. There was a, there was a set of black golfers and a set of white golfers. And when they were asked to perform a test that would you know, test them on their strategy, that's what they were told, when they were under the impression they were being tested on their strategy, the white golfers performed better than the black golfers. But when they were under the impression that they were being tested on their athletic ability, the black golfers performed better. So I got, mm -hmm. I got curious, knowing, knowing examples like that and how each group has their own forms of stereotype threat, how do you suggest going about creating a level playing field when it's possible that when you're trying to help one group overcome their stereotype threat, you might be making things more complicated for another group. Yes, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll insert another example here because maybe listeners would can resonate to it, uh, and and then we can 
answer that question, or try, I could try to, of, of uh, what you might do about it. Uh, th this would be the, the standard uh, parent-teacher conference in grade school, where there's an African-American couple coming in to talk to a white teacher about their son, let's say. Uh, that's a good example of sort of uh, reciprocating stereotype threats. Uh, the African-American couple in that situation uh, is going to be worried about whether their child, their dear child, is going to be seen through the lens of stere racial stereotypes about his abilities, about his aggressiveness maybe. And they're, they're sort of hell-bent on getting the teacher not to do that and the school not to do that and to monitor whether it's happening and so on and so forth. And where does that stereotype comes from our history, the history of our society? And it was probably born as a uh, as an explanation for inequality. Um, and, uh, well, the reason that group isn't doing so well is, and then up pops a stereotype, which then could beset this poor child. And this parent, these parents are, are resisting it. Um, that's their stereotype threat. The, the white teacher is going to have her very powerful form of stereotype threat in that conversation, too. Uh, which is that if she says the wrong thing or make, tries to give some critical feedback out of the best of intentions, maybe she'll be seen as racist. That's the stereotype about whites that she would be, that's relevant in that situation. And so she's, whether, you know, whether she's vividly aware of it or not, she's probably feeling the pressure of that. So there you have um, American history through the stereotypes that are around in our society, exerting very profound pressures on, on people. If you had that same conversation in a different uh, society, uh, you know, it'd probably be just an ordinary conversation. Uh, but in this society, it's loaded, it's fraught, uh, in, in because of these stereotype pressures that, that we're trying to describe. And what do you do about it? How do you fix that? I, I think one thing we have to recognize is that these pressures make it difficult for us to trust each other? You know, to trust that we're going to be that the, we're going to be given the benefit of the doubt that the student will be seen in terms of of their potential, and that potential will be in fully invested in. Uh, and can I trust that when I go to school and I'm in that situation? Because I know how people think about my group, and I'm not sure that I can really trust that kind of um, investment in them. And on the other hand, uh, you know, can I trust that, that these African-American kids aren't going to see me as racist? Can I just relax? And... So I, I think boiling it down, it does come to a matter of trust. And I think that uh, one of the important things are institutions like our schools, but also our businesses and corporations have to recognize is that as we, as they grow more diverse, we have to invest more in building trust uh, among um, all parties in the institution. That that has got to be recognized as something that is incredibly important. You know, good teachers. There, there are there are these amazing teachers that uh, maybe everybody, or maybe many of us, have had really good teachers um, in our experience. At least one. Let's hope. Um, what that's what they do they kind of you know that when you have a really good teacher you trust that teacher you trust that she's she's there for you and that she, she cares about you and 
and uh, she she sets that up, and then once that's there, and I and I have a conviction about that, she could say a whole bunch of things to me, and it wouldn't wouldn't bother me. Um, uh, and I, so I, I give that as an example of, of what I mean by building trust. It's it's trust in 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 the in the in the the, the, the idea that I'm not going to see you in the worst light. You can trust I won't see you that way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's kind of how I think one needs to go about thinking re- about how to remedy these pressures. The experiment you, or not experiment, the situation you just mentioned about the parent-teacher conference, it reminded me of another study you talked about in your book where you, and I believe this was your experiment, where you um, you had, a, you had a, a white person come in, for example, and say you're going to, or you know what, I'm going to ask you to explain it because you can explain it better than me. Could you explain the, there was an example you had about you would ask someone to set up chairs in a position and it was it was relevant it was relevant to you know first we're going to see if we tell them they're going to have a just an open conversation about race and you you added some touches and there were different responses to it i don't want to butcher the study so i'll let you take it away if you could explain that study and that made me think about you know how can we that see that study seems relevant to some of the issues we're we're grappling with with law enforcement today and trying to trying to navigate how stereotype threat comes up in law enforcement. And I'm wondering if that study, if there's anything that can be gleaned from that study that we can apply to law enforcement. Uh, yes, uh, that study is sort of asking the question of uh, how can, can whites feel comfortable in an interracial interaction where the threat they're operating under is that if they lift an eyebrow the wrong way or say something, they could be seen as racist. So uh, there, uh, just like the example I was giving about the white teacher and you know, talking to the black parents. Um, so our question with that study, well, is, is there something we, uh, that whites can do that would relax that pressure and enable them to feel comfortable in a conversation like that? So uh, very quickly, you know, we had white, white males come into the lab one at a time, and we told them they were gonna have a conversation with two other students and they sat down and the, the photos of the, two, of the two people they were gonna to talk to were on the desk. So for half of them, the photos were of two white guys. For the other half, they were of two black guys. And then they were told that they were gonna have a conversation either about love and relationships, something that college kids can talk easily with each other about, or it was gonna be about racial profiling, a heavy conversation. Uh, and uh, then the experimenter says, look, I'm going to go down the hall. I'm going to get the two, your conversation partners and bring them back. And while I'm gone, would you mind uh, arranging the chairs for the conversation? Uh, and uh, as I can see, you're smiling. You know exactly what we were after there. We, that's the whole, what the whole experiment is about. We want to see how they position themselves for this conversation. Uh, as a function of whether they're going to talk to two white guys or two black guys about either love and relationship or racial profiling. And you might anticipate the results that when they're going to talk to two white guys about anything, they put the three chairs close together. When they're going to talk to two black guys about love and relationships, they put the three chairs close together. But when they're going to talk to two black guys about uh, racial profiling, they put the two black guys at a distance from themselves. And interestingly, we've measured how prejudiced they were before the experiment. Uh, interestingly, 
the, there was a tendency for the least prejudiced people to do that the most, mm. to distance themselves the most. Um, and you can see why when you think about it, they, they have the most to lose if there's a mistake and they get seen as racist. It would be very painful to them. But the question you're after is, well, what can you do in that situation where they're going to talk to two black strangers about racial profiling? What can you do to make them comfortable enough to bring their chairs close together? Now, we tried a variety of things. Uh, this was work done with uh, Phil, this was Phil Goff's experiment. And um, we tried a variety of things. Um, the, uh, some things that look like modern day bias training, some things that look like diversity training, they didn't work. Uh, what did work was uh, a, a, a pretty uh, simple, uh, straightforward instruction, which is look before they ar arrange the chairs. Look, look uh, nobody knows how to have this kind of conversation. It's difficult in the United States. We have a history. It's fraught, on and on. Uh, the only, the, what you should do is view this conversation as an opportunity to learn about another person's experience. So you give them a mindset of learning, a growth mindset with regard to learning about other people. And when we did that, they moved their chairs close together. And uh, uh, for this otherwise fraught conversation, interracial conversation about a racially difficult topic, uh, I do think there's a lesson in that, which is that in a diverse society, uh, the posture, the probably the most uh, effective posture to take, or at least one effective posture to take, is one of, uh, of um, inquisitiveness, curiosity. Don't be a nuisance, but, a gent but respect people by uh, uh, listening to them and probing what is their feeling about the situation. How do they, what, what's, what's happening to them? What are they going through? It's a good question to, to ask them. And in that mode as a questioner, it's, it's easy to kind of come in into a more difficult conversation. But our mode tends to be, we're going to perform that we're not prejudiced, we're bound and determined to say something, you know, to send off all kinds of signals that I'm not prejudiced, I just gave to the NAACP, and I, my goodness, I hate this person who said a racist thing. And we, we do a lot of performance. But um, what is, I think, trusted more is an avenue to trust is question. Just, just when in doubt, ask questions. Position oneself as a learner, um, and so that I think that's the the psychological and maybe moral lesson in that experiment. And do you think, in terms of applying that, because Whistling Vivaldi really came to the forefront of my mind this year in light of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Arbery and the countless others we've lost, and it just it just came to my mind. How can we how can we take this? You know, if if there's um, you know, police officers listening to us, for example, what, what's the learning lesson in terms of, of, yeah. of getting, getting so to we, a place of greater social justice, particularly when it comes to law enforcement? Yeah, that was your question. Uh, I forgot it. Forgot to turn to that. <laughs> All uh, good. So picking up, yeah. <laughs> I think there is a lesson there for, you know, one uh, uh, approach that police often take in, 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 interactions with the public uh, is that it's important to establish authority in the situation. And when they get resistance to that, they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And things escalate. 
and the, and we've seen the tragedy, tragedy after tragedy after tragedy of precisely that simple uh, phenomenon, that misunderstanding that escalates. Uh, they feel that I, by God, I'm the law, and I'm pursuing justice here, and I'm needed, which is true. Uh, but uh, and so I have to establish that as an authority. Uh, the, on the other side of that experience are people that may, are maybe completely innocent and being abruptly jerked out of their life, lives by, uh, uh, with, with a horrendous uh, allegation that they've broken the law. So they're, they're tremendously emotional. And this approach of police doesn't really appreciate that. There's not much room in, in their authority uh, establishing focus to appreciate that. Um, that's exactly what I would say is the profound error in policing. It's a profound error. And it's, there's a simple solution, which I think is illustrated in that experiment. I, I don't, I'm not saying it's an always forever perfect solution, but it would have saved a lot of lives in the situations we've seen on television lately. And that is to do that, to take that kind of uh, growth mindset, that learning mindset. Let me understand what this person is. What, let, let, let me see what is going on here. Uh, and, and to ask questions. Stand back a little. Don't crowd the person into a panic and into an escalation. Ask questions. Be polite. You've got the person. You've got the authority. Assume that you don't have to do more. Mm -hmm. uh, probe, probe, probe. Uh, and, and then behave accordingly. But but the tone of the interaction is probably as, as important as anything else in how, whether these things go badly or not. And um, I, I, I think at this moment in time, the, the, the police are backed on their heels and they're just defensive about how they do their work and, and what we expect of them and what we need them to do. They're bringing in these things, which I think are broadly, very broadly accepted. Mm -hmm. But what is difficult for a person to endure is that instant, abrupt stopping of your life uh, and with, with a heavy allegation and for minority populations, African-American populations, a long history of killing them at that moment. So they're, they're, they're tremendously aroused at that, at that moment. I've had that happen to me. The arousal is, I've never... I'll never forget it. So uh, there has to be in in the kind of diverse society that we have, in order for it to be a fair and humane society, there has to be a different approach evolved by law enforcement. One of the things I so admire about your work is you're constantly thinking about these greater challenges that minor, especially minorities face, whether it's in education or otherwise, like we just talked about, and you you found this brilliant way of for example whether it's with asking people to assemble chairs in a certain formation or 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 otherwise you have found ways to address what can seem like weighty issues on their surface but you you have found a way into them in ways that i find very admirable when you are doing let's say the scientific method that we're all taught in grade school at this very high stakes level at this very high level how do you go about doing it? And if you could walk us through it, maybe with how you came up with the chair experiment or another experiment of your choice. But I'm curious how you 
you take these things that have been in your mind or your experiences, like you mentioned in the book, you know, you, you came to think about identity threat when you were a young boy who was only able to use the community pool on Wednesday afternoons. You know, you, you, what I love is you take these, these challenges and you face them head on when a lot of people might be otherwise discouraged and you look for the way in. And I'm curious, how do you take these challenges and find a way to tackle them through science? Well, uh, I, the first thing I want to acknowledge is that I've been blessed by, by having a, a good set of collaborators over my long career and students. Uh, and um, it's, it's, it's really a lot of, I have to say, for those people that are thinking about science, it's fun. Uh, and you, sit, you spend a lot of time sitting in your office taking a problem, like you say, a real life problem, and, and trying to figure out, well, how could I operationalize that in a laboratory? Is there some way I could set up a little drama in the laboratory where I could capture the essence of that? and see how it works and see what things affect it, keep it, sustain it, wipe it out, uh, get, get to some under, deep understanding of, of the, the psychology of it. So that, that's, the, that's the exercise of being a, a social psychologist in, 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 in biggest part, a research social psychologist, is thinking up those things. Uh, and they're not guided, but I, I, do, I do think they benefit from a kind of, uh, at least in my experience, people do these things, every, every scientist is different, but I've, I've just enjoyed having, uh, putting my feet up on the desk and the student and I sitting there maybe for two or three hours and we'll try, we'll come up with something, some game. It's like kick, coming up with a game. And well, would this work? Would that work? Well, that would not be, that might work, but it would be unethical. So sure. we can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, or yeah, the, 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 the Human Subjects Review Committee would never let us do it if we tried. So that's a constraint. Uh, you, you have to be humane. You have to debrief people. You have to inf give them informed consent. So, that, so you're under a, a set of constraints and you're trying to think of uh, some pretty harmless things. Um, to do that would get nonetheless get to the heart of the matter. So I, I don't know another way to describe it other than uh, as you get trained as a social psychologist, uh, that's what you get trained in. Also the statistics, the experimental design, the things that go into evaluating whether that drama is reliably telling you something or not. That, that, that is sort of the infrastructure of, of, of the science and you certainly have to become a master of that to do this uh, kind of research, which I, I don't want to make it sound like it's beyond reach. It's not, uh, but uh, it, it, that's kind of what, that's kind of what it feels like. It's two o'clock on the afternoon on Tuesday. You've got a meeting with a student. You may, you guys have had this abstract problem. You know what it is, uh, uh, what, you know, what, what the problem is maybe in your experience and maybe other people's you've talked to people, you've read everything else, everybody else has done on this and you see this, You've identified a clear question here, and now how do you come up with a drama to make it to test it? Amazing. It's fun. So if there was an addendum to be added to Whistling Vivaldi, or if, if I don't know if you have a new edition planned, but if you were to come out with an updated edition, is there anything you would, any new concept that you think you might want to include? Well, I hinted at it or said it maybe uh, earlier. Uh, I, I do think... Uh, Thinking about the, those phenomenon and related phenomenon, uh, 
uh, I, I guess I would update it by talking about some of the, ch the challenges of diversity itself, that uh, we have a complicated history as a society. It's, it's a magnificent country. It's a magnificent country. But it has a very, very, some very, very dark parts to it. And we've not been good at uh, giving, at having an integrated story of, of our uh, nation. And one of the things I think that the lack of that story, uh, a problem it causes for us, is that when we come together in our institutions, which we increasingly will, as our institutions get increasingly diverse, our disciplines, our, our uh, professions, everything, our churches even get more. Uh, there's an inherent challenge there, and that is, and, and what that is, uh, can I trust the situation? And do I feel safe in the situation? White people feel it, black people feel it, Muslims feel it, Native Americans feel it, women feel it in many STEM fields. Can I trust this? Can I trust that the, uh, the that people will see the best in me, will invest in me? If you got a very homogeneous society with one kind of person in it in the school, uh, like perhaps or the, for the longest period of time, that's what our schools were really focused around a pretty homogeneous set of people, white males of a certain class. If you go back in to, uh, through, this, through the decades and centuries pre-desegregation, uh, and in a homogeneous situation like that, you don't have to worry so much about trust. People are going to have it. I don't, you know, we're all the same, so I'm not going to be disadvantaged that way. But when you bring us together now, you're bringing together people that have had profoundly, come from groups with profoundly different experiences in society, and it's hard for us to trust each other. And um, so my addendum to the book would be uh, probably a, a, a focus on that, because I, I think one of the remedies to these stresses uh, is more accessible, this is where I come out more hopeful, more accessible than we think. Uh, it's yeah, trust is something you can build with people across identity divides. White people can build it with black people. Many, 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 many friendships like that in this society. Um, men can build it with women. Uh, Muslims can build it with Christians. Uh, trust is a game that is played on the ground. And if I, if, if, if I, if I show up and I listen to people and I uh, work for the best interest of, of, of people, they, they start to trust me even though I, I, I'm a different kind of person. Mm. And, that, that is a, and that's something that everybody can participate in. If I'm a teacher, or if I'm a manager, uh, I don't have to have the same identity as my students or as my employees in order to be trusted. Uh, if I have their, their back, if I have their interests, if I listen to them, um, and, and help them concretely, concretely move forward in the situation. I help develop plans and paths forward. They're going to trust me. Um, and there's so many examples of where that's, there's a great interview of, uh, I read a couple weeks ago, of African-American soldiers in Vietnam yeah. ask about, race in the army what do they feel about race in the army and this one guy puts it so brilliantly he says look i uh, there are some white dudes in, in in my platoon 
there's some bad dudes, man. And uh, I can I can count on them. I trust the hell out of them. I don't really care what they call me. I can trust them. And then there are other white dudes that if they said good morning to me, I'd want to hit them in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I don't trust them. And uh, <laughs> I don't know, that little, that, that kind of brings it into, <laughs> yeah. into, into, into view what we're talking about here. I think everybody can recognize that. That's what we're looking for with each other. So to take yeah. that specifically into education, because one of, one of the other things that really stuck, stuck out to me was the study where when females are given a math test and they're told that men, sorry, women perform just as well as men on this test, they tend to do better than if they're just going blindly into a math test. If yeah. I think I'm saying that correctly. So how do we take that, that same concept and apply it to education? Is it, is the solution, you know, telling women before a test, like, like you mentioned in the study, women do just as well as men on this test or what is, what is the solution? Because you leave us with Whistling Vivaldi with, with a couple with a couple avenues that I, I wrote down here, which is one being how can we foster conversations among students of different backgrounds, but two, how do we help students develop realistic yet encouraging narratives about their setting? So I'm curious, you know, in the case of women taking a math test, how do we make them feel more comfortable doing that to mitigate some of their identity threat? Yeah, well, there, there, there are answers that go off in se several directions. Uh, one, one thing I think that we can do, uh, in, in, if you're just talking about testing per se, I don't know, SAT taking and sure. standardized yeah. test taking, um, uh, I, I, I think we're, we, we have to learn how to, we have to uh, devise ways of lowering the stakes of those tests. Maybe giving them small tests every other Friday afternoon throughout high school. So that, and with the, the idea that if I learn better and uh, I'll, I'll get to take it over again, mm -hmm. that, and that the, 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 the tests given like that shorter, lower stakes tests are used to help me to help identify what I need to work on more. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you, if you think about a test being stretched out over that period of time and, uh, and becoming a cumulative record of a student's uh, motivation and 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 and, and uh, growth, how, how much they're learning, and how uh, I, I think that kind of information, that kind of a test, so to speak, is going to be much more predictive of how they do in later life than the current tests we have, mm -hmm. which are just too loaded to be fair to the people who have to take them under the kind of stereotype threat pressures that I'm talking about, and and uh, and under other kinds of distracting pressures. Um, you take a poor kid who's given a standardized test when he or she shows up to school. That kid may be coming from uh, a, a fairly un destabilized, a home destabilized by unemployment, mm -hmm. uh, by the inability to really cope with, with pressures on family life, maybe even food deprivations, not good food, uh, tough work hours, all kinds of things. So that kid shows up in school, takes a test doesn't do as well. And we interpret that. We have the nerve to interpret that as, a, as an honest assessment of that child's ability. Well, that child's ability doesn't have any way of breaking through all those pressures in his or her life. But when the, given the ethos of testing in our, our society, we, we, we take that 
as, as a measure of ability. And we assign that kid to a, a form of education, a lower track in school, that we think is suited to that ability. So now we've just guaranteed that uh, uh, the disadvantages uh, are going to, that he's already suffered, are going to be used to freeze out opportunity to overcome them. Uh, that's not good, the way we're organized around that. And it's really terrible as the society, again, grows more diverse. It, uh, um, it, it's, it's a hard one for me. Right. And so by making the tests less high stakes, you know, Low, pay, lower stakes, lower stakes, spread out. Is that, that's an opportunity for students to, one, as they learn, they can perform better. And, yeah. and two, not be as discouraged by one negative result. Is that right? Yeah. Got it. And in fact, we might even find that the rate at which they improve is something that really is useful information, too, about predicting yeah. how well they're going to do and, and so on. So, the, so that, that's, one, that's one immediate thing applied to uh, testing. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I think other things uh, uh, drawing from the uh, idea of trust are also available to teaching and I don't think they're used as, as, as much. I think there's uh, like you take that same child. Well, how do you, how do you, how should a school receive that child? Uh, should, should we, should we say by golly school is designed to teach that kid to read and do his math. And so we're going to really, you know, lengthen the school day and, and hold that, you know, hold his teacher to accounts. If she, if he doesn't learn, we're going to, not give her a rate, you know, all those sort of hard nose uh, things. Or should uh, the teacher just, when that kid gets to school uh, that day and he's got a room full of kids like that, maybe she should take the first 45 minutes and just read to them. Hmm. Let them decompress. Let them actually see the uh, joy of reading in, this, in stories. Bet they'd love that. And I bet that would put them in a whole different, that's what they need, given the pressures of their home life and their and, and life in their communities, their neighborhoods. Uh, so if we begin to uh, see, and, and the kids then are going to trust that somebody sees what I'm living through. <laughs> they're not just beating me up again when I get to school. Right. Uh, they're actually ah, giving me some repose and and they're, they're going to support me and help me move forward. Uh, so all that's trust building because, and it's building in, in the, I think the principal ingredient is that we're, the, the child can see that the people uh, love them. You know, one of the great Martin Luther King quotes toward the end of his life was uh, that he was asked, uh, do you have any anxieties about integration, racial integration? Uh, in particular in schools. And his answer was, I, I, I do. I worry that our, our children are not going to be taught by people who love them. Hmm. And that's, you know, love, soft word. School's about skills and the economy. Are you talking about love? But, you know, actually, of course, on the ground, it's about love. It's about being invested in, 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 in a child's potential, like your own child. You know, they don't have to prove that their potential to you before you give them resources. You, you give them resources. You support them. You scaffold them. You tell them how to do it. You tell them what's important, how to send their, spend their time. You give them all the cultural capital they need to 
succeed here. You don't just give them a seat and say, okay, I'll let you in. Uh, let's see how well you do. And if you don't do well, you're going to go into the lower tracks. That, that makes sense to me on the, you get, you get my gist. I, yeah. I think we're off, uh, at, at, at the, given the, given the real society we got, I, I think we're off on, uh, we're, we're trying to make a model that might've worked in the late 19th century with a homogeneous school population of, 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 pr of pretty well-off white males. We're trying to make that work for everybody and it won't. That makes sense to me as you're talking in the teacher to student dynamic. And as you're saying, as we become more diverse, how can we organically foster conversations between students of different backgrounds? Because I remember reading in your book, you, you saw that African-American students, largely their closest friends tended to be fellow African-American students and white students, largely their closest friends tended to be other white students. Is there is there an organic way of going about getting different groups of students to have conversations with each other and actually become close friends? Yes, I, I mean, I think uh, we did an intervention once with, with exactly that aim at the University of Michigan, it's probably 30 years ago. Uh, and uh, we got uh, uh, black and white students, all in the ratio of students who were admitted to Michigan. So uh, probably what would that be at the time? Uh, I don't know, 75% white and and maybe 20% uh, African-American, maybe 5% Latinx at that time in Michigan. Uh, and we told them that this is 250 kids in a wing of a dormitory that, um, you know, if you agree to be in this, in this dormitory and in this program, you're going to learn a lot about how to cope with this big university. It's got tremendous resources, but you really do know how to, need to know how to extract them and deal with this. We'll give you that. And we also value... Um, Diversity. So you uh, and the ability part of this program also offers, uh, you know, the, the skill of getting along with people of, of, who, who are maybe different than you. So that was the setup. Everybody agreed to do it. Everything, almost everybody we asked, all students agreed to, to do it. Um, and there are all kinds of kids, STEM kids, engineering kids, you know, English major kids. Uh, and uh, at on Thursday nights, we had B, you know, kind of, we would entice them into BS, dormitory BS sessions with donuts <laughs> and pizza. <laughs> I guess we should be ashamed of using that kind of lure, but it worked. <laughs> um, and they got to talk to each other about these things in the kind of way that I just described in the experiment where, you know, you ask questions of each other. They were, we, we told them how to do it. And, um, you know, don't don't mansplain to th people don't here's the way to relate to each other and it worked marvelously and they became you know black kids and white kids be it was just for their freshman year they they became roommates in their subsequent years at michigan and their grades went up uh especially for the minority students uh the very different experience so that experience gave me gives me some confidence that we can do just what you're uh, just what you're talking about. And, and it, it is paying attention to the psychological issues that uh, we're trying to unravel here and addressing them. I want to be respectful of your time. You've already given us so much wisdom. And I really encourage anyone who hasn't yet had the opportunity to read your book, read your writing, to check it out. Because 
There are so many fascinating experiments that I always find a different one coming to the forefront of my mind as I'm as I'm in daily life. And we've gotten to cover a few here. And I thank you for indulging me. So we'll just wind down with a few rapid fire questions. Okay. Firstly, what's an app? These are going to be the hardest questions for me to answer, I'm sure. <laughs> Firstly, what's what's an app um, that you can't live without? Waze. Who would you like to play you in a movie about your life? Uh, Denzel Washington. <laughs> if you could wait. I don't know the man, but, um, you know, he's... <laughs> well, I'd be flattered. <laughs> we're putting it out there. Denzel, if you're listening. <laughs> if you could wake up tomorrow having gained one skill or ability, what would it be? Uh, let's see. I uh, Two. One would be French. I've, I, 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 I don't know, for it's been a lifelong uh, hobby, and it's always been frustrated by the pattern of going there and getting better at it for two or three weeks and then not going back for the next four years and then having it. So I'd love to just finally get a hold of that uh, and seamlessly move into, into that. Or maybe Spanish, too. That would be another. Those would be my two favorites. Uh, the other thing is... Uh, uh, executive functioning, uh, I think everybody, it's increasingly difficult because we have so many distractions and so much uh, stuff that uh, I, I always feel like I don't, like I'm not the most, that there's a level of skill there that I don't yet have. <laughs> and I think the biggest, the biggest uh, indicator to me would be uh, the ability to stop doing things and move on to other things. It's mm. hard for me. You're a completionist. I'm a completionist. <laughs> even when, even when, you know, you're not working very efficiently anymore. There I am. I should take a break and yeah. pick this up the next day. I'm just plugging, you know, <laughs> so I need a little better executive functioning. Where's a place that you haven't been to yet that you hope to visit? Um, I would like to go to Tokyo. That seems to be our most common answer. And I, I it's mine as well. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Is it right? Wow. What? Yeah, no, I've been, I've been to, um, I've been to Japan. I've been to Osaka, uh, and, uh, Kyoto. Hmm. Kyoto was just beautiful. Uh, so I, I feel like Japan in general, uh, would be fascinating. And, and Tokyo is, is just such a world phenomenon. I, I, I'd be, uh, I'm, I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and what's a song that you like to jam to? And I'll preface by saying we have a Spotify playlist where we eat, where we add each guest song recommendation. So if you could contribute one song to our playlist, what would you like to okay, contribute? Okay, the one I'm listening to today is called uh, It's You That I Need by The Enchantments. <laughs> Amazing. We'll add that. <laughs> Which is going to reveal to people my ancient uh, R&B interest. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'd like to give you, I, I'm also equally... Uh, a jazz fan. I'm on the I'm on the San Francisco uh, uh, jazz board. Oh wow! I didn't know. Uh, that. Uh, I love jazz, and and I, I could give you uh, "Fee to Kilimanjaro" by Miles Davis. That's a beautiful tune for me. Um, so many many things by uh, Miles Davis are are wonderful to recommend to people that don't know jazz. It's a way to get into it. Uh, but uh, but there I am with my kind of almost high school level music. <laughs> today too. I, I really like it. It's a great song. It builds. It's, mm. That's your jam. We're going to add it's it. It's got mummy. <laughs> before, before I let you go and, and have you tell people where they can find your work, can I just ask you, how do you stay sharp? 
because you are one of the smartest people I've spoken to. How do you stay sharp? Do you, are you, what is, do, is there something you like to read constantly? Do you have a routine that you think keeps you sharp? What is it that keeps you so sharp? Well, I mean, I, I, I first I'm flattered by that perception, uh, but work just, you know, kind of, uh, work, work is a pleasure to me by and large. I mean, there's too much of it, which is yeah. not a pleasure. Uh, and that's, that's where the executive functioning business comes in again. But, but uh, I, you know, I think you stay uh, sharp uh, by continuing to challenge yourself. And, and uh, so that, I know that's a, a cliche, but, but uh, I'm 70, I'm going to be 75 in, on January 1st. So, um, oh, wow, you're I, a New Year's baby. I'm a New Year's baby. So I, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh that piece of wisdom stays you got to stay in the game yeah and uh where can people find your work well whistling vivaldi is a book you can get on amazon that 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 that's a good way to do it there's some recent articles that people might there's one in the in the chronicle of higher education uh last november that is talks about trust and kind of updates some of the the thinking in 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 that but for for people a general audience i think that kind of those those things are written more for general audiences, so that might be useful. Why the, the title of that off, uh, uh, article is why why our campuses are so tense, hmm. uh, and it kind of gets to a lot of what uh, I've been talking about in your in this podcast. So. And I'll I'll make my last plug for Whistling Vivaldi, which is I've read it twice now, and I just listened to the audio book. So for people who are audiobook fans, that's very easily accessible and. What I, what I really enjoyed about your book is that it is an academic book, but it is written in an accessible way. And there will, like any academic book, I'm sure people will, will learn new words that they'll look up in the dictionary. But by and large, it was a digestible read that it was very eye-opening. And when I, when I find an academic book that satisfies the center of that Venn diagram, it is really gratifying. And I just tell everyone I know about it. So that is my last plug for Whistling Vivaldi. And, well, uh, well, thank you. I'm, I'm immensely <laughs> grateful for that plug. <laughs> Much appreciated. Of course. And if anybody's interested in the podcast, you can check us out at hdydpod.com or on Instagram at hdydpod. Thank you very much, Dr. Steele. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. Best of luck. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. <laughs>